The reading is from the first letter to Corinthians, chapter 12. Now, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I tell you, that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one, just as he determines. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we sit, let's pray. Our Father God, we pray for the direction of your Holy Spirit as we think this morning about spiritual gifts in the life of our Christian community. In Jesus' name, amen. In recent years, there's been a great deal of interest in uh, educational circles in identifying gifted children Now, it may be that a child is particularly good at maths or music or languages, and the idea is to identify these gifts and ensure that the education is structured so that it nurtures those gifts. And I think more generally uh, in society, we're looking to identify and use uh, people's natural gifts and abilities, particularly at work. And so too in the church. It's a necessity to identify gifts and to ensure that those are properly developed and directed. Let me make it clear, it's an added dimension, not just natural gifts, but also spiritual gifts. And that's what our subject is this morning. Paul is here in this reading that we've just had, responding to a we believe, a specific question about spiritual gifts. 
Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. If you go back to Corinth in the first century AD, there was a lively tradition of pagan worship. And there were two emphases that had powerful effects on the lives of those who attended that worship. The first is that much pagan worship was characterized by spiritual signs, including mystical divination, ecstatic utterances, and spirit possession. Now, those things are not part of our everyday experience. In 1969, Elizabeth and I were living in Rio de Janeiro. And the tradition is that on New Year's Eve, huge numbers of people, probably millions, go down to the famous Copacabana Beach in Rio. And a predominant part of that are spiritist groups who are dressed all in white. At midnight, there's a cacophony of fireworks, such as you've never heard before, and lots of the characters who are dressed in white rush into the sea with offerings, usually gladioli, to the goddess of the sea, Irmanja. We ventured onto the beach with some non-Christian friends. We saw ritual sacrifice of chickens, worshippers possessed, ecstatic singing and dancing. We also experienced an overpowering sense of evil, and we left the beach as quickly as we possibly could. There's no doubt that Corinthian Christians had experienced such pagan worship in their past, and they knew how powerfully it had affected them. So Paul writes in verse 2 of chapter 12, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. But there was a second strand of pagan worship, which was the formal imperial cult. Participation in this cult was evidence of your submission to Rome. And part of the affirmation was, Caesar is Lord. I have to say there was nothing spiritual about it. It was just pragmatic to avoid trouble with the authorities. And Paul counters this second strand by reminding his readers of their public baptismal declaration. Verse 3, Jesus is Lord. And that was a radical, subversive confession that could well invite retribution from the authorities. It still does in much of our world. Today is the day of prayer for the persecuted church. We are not persecuted in the same way that, for example, our Christian brethren in Pakistan are persecuted. Note that St. Paul links this declaration to the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because our creedal affirmations, our doctrinal formulae, our study of the Scriptures, are only given life, purpose, and energy insofar as they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. For Christians, the spiritual and the formal 
if you like, the spirit and the word belong together. Neither is sufficient on its own. So let's go back to the question, the likely question, that the Corinthian church had asked of St. Paul. It was probably something like this. What are the roles and purposes of spiritual gifts in the life of the church? What do they contribute? Are they the same as those pagan gifts, spiritual gifts, which we've experienced before? And Paul's response is that these gifts are highly significant, but he points out that they're not the only element in the life of the Christian community. Look again at verses 4 to 6. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Paul identifies three elements, different kinds of gifts, different kinds of service, and different kinds of working. Let's return to the gifts shortly, but let's look at the other two first. Different kinds of service. What that refers to is all the different ways in which we can serve one another. The church is not a stage on which we can demonstrate our spiritual prowess, but it's a community in which we can serve. It's significant that St. Paul associates this with Jesus, the same Lord who took the nature of a servant and humbled himself. Next, different kinds of working. The Greek here is, is basically the energy that gets things done, that produces results. And it should be a feature of the Christian community and its members that they make things happen. Note that the link here is to God the Father, the creator who brings the universe into being, the redeemer who acts in history to bring mankind back to him. So too, when God's people are at work, things should happen. And let me make it clear, that's not just for those who are activists by nature. Paul makes this clear. God makes all of them, works all of them in all men, all people. There are no bystanders. There's no one leaning on their spade. And finally, to complete the Trinitarian reference, Paul identifies different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. The word for gifts here is charismata, from which we get the word charismatic. But in modern Greek, it's the word which is used for a birthday present. I think that's significant. These are gifts freely given by the Holy Spirit out of his love for the church. Moreover, look at verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. That suggests that every Christian receives a gift, and that gift is for the common good of the community, not for our personal satisfaction. So now let's look at these gifts that Paul identifies. Many years ago, we had a conversation with a missionary who was working with a church 
among the indigenous people in the northwest of Argentina. And the question of spiritual gifts came up. And he said, something I've always remembered, he said, it's essential that the church demonstrate spiritual gifts to match those of the shamans or the witch doctors, such as knowing what was happening in a person's life before being told, healing gifts, prophetic gifts concerning the future of the tribe, and ecstatic speaking. Now, some commentators on this this passage think that Paul is doing the same thing here. He's identifying the parallels with pagan worship and asserting the superiority of the Christian version of spiritual gifts. Now, there's not time this morning, you'll be glad to know, to examine all the gifts in detail. So I'm going to do a selection. But before we do that, there are two preliminary points. First, these are supernatural gifts, not natural gifts. Second, the Holy Spirit is the same Spirit who filled and directed Jesus in his incarnation. So it may be helpful to look for parallels in the ministry of Jesus. Let's begin in verse 8 with the message of wisdom. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom. Now we know that this was an issue for the Corinthian church. Indeed, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, Paul addresses the church's preoccupation with the perceived lack of wisdom of the gospel in comparison with the elegance of Greek wisdom. And Paul there notes that his preaching came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I think what this means is that where God's word is communicated with clarity and precision into a situation, that is a message of wisdom. And that's not just by a leader in the church, but by any mature Christian who is open to the Spirit. Let's move on. Verse 9. To another, gifts of healings by the one Spirit. This is not, I think, a reference to a healing ministry exercised by specific individuals. And it's not restricted to physical conditions Minds, addictions, relationships are included. Now, as I read it, there is no consistent pattern either in Jesus' ministry or in the early church or over the Christian millennia of people being healed. I think the best way to look at this is to understand spiritual healing as a complement to the techniques which are used in medicine psychiatry and counseling because it recognizes the spiritual dimension of human personhood. But it would be quite wrong to rule out physical healing in response to prayer. And then thirdly, verse 10, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues. The Corinthian church evidently was much exercised about speaking in tongues. So Paul devotes the whole of chapter 14 to a comparison of prophecy and tongues, and he clearly favors prophecy. 
Look at chapter 14 and verse 5. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. But Paul clearly accepted speaking in tongues as a feature of church life, noting that he himself spoke in tongues more than all of you. But pragmatically, he notes that tongues are only profitable to the church if interpreted. So in verse 13 of chapter 14, for this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. Now, much more could and should be said about this matter. Let me just make one comment in passing. Tongues in our church are much less in evidence now than they were 25 years ago. And I think we might like to ask why. Let's move on rapidly to a brief application. Let me read you again verse 7 of chapter 12. Now to, each one of the, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And that immediately raises the question, do you know what is your spiritual gift? Is it a gift which is complementary to your natural gifts? And then secondly, how are you using those gifts? Note that St. Paul explicitly links gifts, service, and working, making things happen. That is the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Individually, And corporately, we need to give this much greater attention. Let's pray. Almighty God, without you we are not able to please you. Mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts and lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.